the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, the Gospel Coalition looks at the best way forward for pro-lifers. And then we're joined by Matthew Barrett, the author of Simply Trinity. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Wednesday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. I found this really fascinating article two days ago at the Gospel Coalition. By the way, can you believe that tomorrow is April the 1st? April Fool's Day. Woo! Stuff is moving. We're getting into the springtime. Super excited for that. It's also, I say this every day, it's opening day. Baseball is upon us and we can celebrate that. Well, uh, Marvin Olasky at the Gospel Coalition wrote this. The best way forward for pro-lifers, is it legislation, protest, or a culture of life? Such an important conversation here. Marvin Olasky is an editor-in-chief of World Magazine, also an elder at his church. And so uh, let me just read this for you because I here's the deal, friends. I've told you this since day one of the show. I'm unashamedly, unabashedly pro-life. And that uh, one of those ways, maybe the primary way that that manifests itself is in um, – is in the abortion conversation. It is saying, no, no, we want to stand up uh, for the most vulnerable, that being the unborn. And then we also want to say that we want to have a pro-life ethic that goes throughout every aspect of our lives. When we discuss uh, end-of-life issues, when we discuss um, poverty and healthcare, when we discuss immigration, when we discuss gun control and the death penalty, we want to debate that with as each other. And we want to have different views. That's okay. But we primarily want to say, what is the pro-life ethic? When I look through the pro-life lens, how does it manifest itself in all of this? This is not just a conversation about abortion. Okay. It's not. Uh, that might be the primary one culturally, but it's not just about abortion. So the best way forward for pro-lifers, this is what he's going to write. He says, my favorite childhood movie, The Great Escape, portrays an escape by allied prisoners of war from a German POW camp. The prisoners work on three tunnels simultaneously, calling them Tom, Dick and Harry. When cards, cards, when guards discover Tom, the tunnel furthest along, the prisoners intensify their alternative efforts. From the pro-life perspective, pro-life Americans have been in a prison camp ever since 1973, this author writes, when a Supreme Court majority overrode state laws and legalized abortion throughout the U.S. Since then, the court has killed attempts by state legislatures to tear down the prison walls and fences. Once in a while, the court has allowed removal of a watchtower. So he writes three tunnels for pro-lifers. Abortion opponents have responded. So remember what I said, that the, the primary one is abortion. That's what he is focusing on. But I do want to remind us, it's not the only part of the pro-life conversation. And if you see it as the only one, then it doesn't bleed over into the other things in your life. And it must. But he writes, abortion opponents have responded with three tunnels. Tom, 
elect pro-life legislatures, pass laws, appoint the right judges. Dick, a spectrum of direct action ranging from peaceful to violent. Harry, help women surprised by pregnancy, show them what the creatures in their womb look like, create a, quote, culture of life. Each of these tunnels has had faithful diggers, and I don't want to disparage any nonviolent protesters. To be effective, though, we need to know which tunnels are partly blocked and which offer the greatest hope of saving the most lives. Prisoners in the Great Escape are desperate to break out. So is just about everyone in the longstanding abortion wars and the individual battles with compromise. He's going to talk about his new book, Abortion at the Crossroads. It examines the history of each tunnel and opportunities each allows. He says, my elevator summary would be that Dick, the direct action tunnel, has experienced lots of cave-ins, while Harry, the compassion tunnel, offers the best access regardless of what happens in Washington. But the story's complicated and an assessment of Tom, the legislative judicial tunnel, may depend in part on what the U.S. Supreme Court does with numerous state heartbeat laws heading its way. It's going to talk much more about laws. And then he goes on to say, whatever happens politically and judicially, pro-lifers are at a crossroads. Many have focused on abortion centers, praying and counseling outside them, even harassing them in various ways. But the number of chemical abortions will soon surpass surgical ones. COVID-19 has sped the uh, move to telemedicine and direct distribution of, quote, abortion pills with a resultant rise in do-it-yourself abortion. Pro-lifers celebrating the closing of abortion centers may be like anti-pornography crusaders who shut down video stores only to see it all go online. My fellow journalists will play a crucial role in all this, and so far most are falling, failing to lay out the facts. Culture of life, he says, it's easy for many Christians to complain about the press, but some pastors haven't done much better. Pastors have opportunities to create a culture of life by drawing out the implications of passages like uh, Isaiah 44, 2, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. John Piper said he was reluctant to preach against abortion, but he thanks God for, quote, mercifully taking away my blind spots, showing me in the scriptures all kinds of reasons for standing up and defending little ones goes on to talk about Pipery, but he goes on to say, many pastors who are exemplars and preach a gospel of grace find post-abortive women thanking them. Pastors need not and should not push for a particular tunnel project. Members can contribute in different ways, and we don't need to argue about who is the greatest, as the disciples did in Mark 9. At that debate, Jesus took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives it. Uh, this article comes from Martin Olasky's Abortion at the Crossroads, Three Paths Forward in the Struggle to Protect the Unborn. I, I, I do like how he did that because a lot of times we only talk about Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme Court. Uh, other times we talk about uh, politicians, 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 laws, laws, laws. But he says there's also creating a culture of life. And that we as the church can point people, it's not just about you shouldn't do that, but it's painting a grander picture of who God is and that God is the creator, even when we can't see it in this unwanted pregnancy. That our, that our heavenly father still knit that baby together in its mother's womb. And that we as the church need to be, to use his tunnel imagery, need to be manning that tunnel that says, we are here for you. We will help you because here's the, here's the deal. A lot of times abortions come out of poverty. Abortions come out of women going, it's not like oh, I got to get rid of this. It's I can't afford this. So what can the church do to stand up? Can the church uh, 
be adopting children, can the whatever else it might be, supporting places like Caring Network. I think this is a really helpful article because if we just talk about laws, we need to talk about laws, but we need not just talk about laws. We need to talk about courts, but not just about courts, that the church can do so much more. And it starts by creating a culture of life. A wonderful article here written by Martin Alasky, the best way forward for pro-lifers, legislation, protest, or culture of life. I think he would ultimately answer that question with a resounding yes. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to be joined by Matthew Barrett. Matthew is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of the new book, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Matthew is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by Matthew Barrett. Matthew is the Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Also is the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast. Uh, And what we're going to spend most of our time talking about is he is the author of a new book called Simply Trinity, the unmanipulated father, son, and spirit. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, I, I gave a lot of your credentials and stuff, but why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, I uh, live in Kansas City. And as you mentioned, I'm at uh, Midwestern Seminary. I love teaching students there, uh, th- uh, theology classes, though also a little bit of church history. Uh, I have a a beautiful wife and and four kids, so mm. it's a busy household, <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And uh, I I just love them to death. In between, you know, wrestling and uh, you know playing football and that sort of thing, I, I try to get a little bit of writing done. So mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you're seeing some of that come out here with uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and. As I like to tell people, goodness, uh, what could be more important to talk about? Exactly. And also more simple, you know? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I, got in the, I got in the car with my youngest daughter the other day. She's 11. And she was like, Dad, help me understand the Trinity. I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> but, but let's just start there, Matthew, because uh, it is yeah. something that we as pastors and just church people joke about, like how almost, almost – incomprehensible the Trinity can be. What is the biblical definition of the Trinity that you would use to explain in kind of layman's terms? Yeah. You know, you're right. It can feel absolutely overwhelming and intimidating. And that's not altogether bad. After all, this is God we're talking about who is infinite and eternal and incomprehensible. And so we don't want to sort of, you know, squash out that mystery. At the same time, like you've hinted at, uh, this is uh, the triune God who's revealed himself to us, and he's done so for the sake of our own salvation. So this is a, this is a God, this is a, a Trinitarian God that, that we worship and mm-hmm. pray to, and, and this affects uh, who we are and, and, and uh, our biggest commitments as Christians. Uh, that said, you know, sometimes it can feel intimidating. You know, where do we start and, and how do we understand the Trinity? I like to tell people, actually, you may know more than you think you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, for example, and how the Jesus himself uh, teaches us this, right? Where he 
He says the Father has sent has sent His Son, uh, and He's done so for the sake of your redemption. And then we see that play itself out as Jesus uh, even lays down His own life, and as we're celebrating this Sunday, rises from the dead. Well, as we consider this great work of salvation, Scripture actually intends. Uh, for us to to keep going, not to stop mm-hmm. there. Uh, Jesus intends this as well. This is one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't just say the, that the Father has sent him into the world. You think of that famous famous passage, John three sixteen. Mm-hmm. But Jesus and John's gospel in particular, uh, they go further and say, "Well, who is this Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, and and where is he from?" And and uh, believe it or not. He's, he's even the son of God himself. And so Jesus is going to have a lot to say then about how he's not just sent into the world, but that actually reveals that he is the very one who is from the Father f- from all eternity. And yeah. uh, it's almost too simple to say because we are so used to, right, throwing around these these words and names like Father and Son, for example, but if we just pause and say, well, why do we why do we use those names? Why does Scripture give us those names? Oh, well, it's because uh, to be a son is to be from a father. Uh, we have to quickly add, of course, this is the eternal son. So there, there never was a time when, when he was not, or there never was a time when he came into existence. This son is from his father, or to use that old-fashioned language, he is begotten from right. his father, but from all eternity. Um, it's a beautiful truth. And, and likewise, when we celebrate the Spirit, right, uh, we, we are indwelt by the Spirit, which is an amazing truth. And we learn in the book of Acts that the Spirit comes at Pentecost. Well, the story doesn't stop there. It's actually meant to, to pull our eyes upward and recognize, oh, this is the Holy Spirit who is given to us mm. to even indwell us. Why? Well, because from all eternity, this is the same Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, of course, there's a lot of mystery there, right? Yeah. But yeah. at the very least, Scripture reveals these super important truths uh, to distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet at the same time, at the same time, it reaffirms that central foundational belief that Father, Son, and Spirit are actually one with mm-hmm. one another, as we the- theologians like to say, yes, they're distinct as persons, but they are one with one another in their divine essence. And so mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the reasons why Jesus can make that astounding statement, sometimes a, a, even a, an offensive statement to some of the religious leaders of his day and say, I am one with the Father. Right. In your book, then, you go on to say that the church has the wrong, unorthodox view of the Trinity. So, A, that feels like a controversial statement, but help us understand that. What, how, is, uh, how is our view wrong and unorthodox in the church? Well, I'm really glad you, br- you brought this up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm stepping on a few toes here <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, that, with that statement, no doubt. Um, this hit me uh, years and years ago. I, you know, I've been studying the Doctrine of the Trinity for years, and uh, part of that project is actually knowing, you know, w- what the church fathers taught. Uh, you think of the first centuries of the church in which so many of the church fathers had to labor so hard 
to to guard the church from on a whole number of heresies that that tried to say deny the equality of the son, for example, with the father. Others uh, that that tried to undermine the the unity that we just made reference to between father, son, and spirit—a a unity that is a unity of of their very essence. Um, but when we if we if we skip forward in time. Uh, even though this was confessed by the church uh, down through the centuries for mm-hmm. about 16, 1700 years, when we get to more recent times, the past several centuries, well, uh, it's a bit shocking and sobering to discover that, well, this historic, biblical, and orthodox understanding of the Trinity has sometimes fallen on pretty hard times. Now, so, sometimes that, that meant uh, just outright rejections of the Trinity. More recently, though, and you sort of pick up on this in the subtitle of my book, more recently, there's been a tendency uh, in the 20th century in particular to look at our human society mm-hmm. and to just assume that the way you know you and I interact as human persons in society, well, that just must be the same way uh, that we define the Trinity and that the way the persons interact with each other. Well, it's actually a, a pretty dangerous assumption to make, right? Because you and I, you know, we're talking here, we're separate individuals. Right. Um, we don't have the type of unity we just described of the Trinity. You have your own will. I have my own will. At best, right, we're maybe cooperating, you know, like we're doing here now. Maybe we're in sync, you know, talking about the same thing or working on a project together. But if, if we're not careful, we might assume, oh, that's just how the Trinity works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, when we talk about the Trinity, we can't forget, no, these aren't separated individual persons. Uh, they can't go off solo from one another. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, well, they are they are one with each other in the strongest sense. Um, and, and so this is one of the reasons why if we return to that biblical language and say, well, the son is begotten from the father. We can we can add to it and say he's begotten from the very essence of the father, which mm-hmm. safeguards that unity that Jesus is talking about in John's gospel. Uh, I'll add one more thing that mm-hmm. uh, is a bit shocking, and it's this: <laughs> not only do we have a tendency in the last century to kind of redefine the Trinity in the image of our own society, but there are just countless examples of uh, all kinds of individuals then taking the Trinity and using it or even manipulating the Trinity for just about every social agenda under the sun, from politics to ecology to views of uh, church government, even to gender discussions. And so I am advocating in this book, hey, let's let's time out. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Let's take a step back. And number one, we need to recognize perhaps we've drifted some from the biblical orthodox understanding of the Trinity. And number two, we we may need to be a bit honest with ourselves and recognize maybe we're actually misusing the Trinity for our own agendas. Why do you think the Trinity has been manipulated within uh, the evangelical culture today? Well, uh, it's a really crucial question and a big one uh, to answer, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it here. Please um, do. I, I think that there may be a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think there's a tendency, uh, if, if we're not careful, we, you know, 
we're all, we can all be guilty of this to one degree or another. There's a tendency to kind of approach God as pragmatists, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love to focus on what God has done for us. And and on the one hand, that's that's important, and that's actually quite crucial. Uh, scripture has a lot to say about what God has done for us. But knowing ourselves and how we can, <laughs> our sinful selves, sometimes we can uh, so focus on that that we only want to know God for the sake of, of you know, how it can better us, mm-hmm. uh, not, not for the sake of actually knowing God. And so that is a subtle shift sometimes in our own thinking. But if we're not careful, we end up using God uh, just for what we can get out of God for our own social agendas. Mm-hmm. Um, that That is one reason. Uh, but But a second reason that I would point to is we also – uh, you know, we also tend to kind of reverse things and flip things upside down. Um, there's a theologian by the name of Catherine Tanner, and she has this great statement where she says, the Trinity is not brought down to our level as a model for us to imitate. Our hope is that we might one day be raised up to its level. I, I love that statement because uh, notice how instead of approaching the Trinity uh, with the mindset of, okay, I'm just approaching this for for why it matters and what I can get out of it and, and how I can just use it as a model for, you know, my view of politics or my view of gender, what, whatever, it, whatever the issue is. It, mm-hmm, it can be mm-hmm. quite endless. Rather, uh, what Tanner's trying to say is actually the way Scripture presents us with the Trinity, it's meant to raise you up so that your primary focus is to contemplate who this triune God is well, that that approach actually leads us to the type of mindset we want on a Sunday morning, which is worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we forget this as Christians, right? Um, we forget that our highest, the greatest calling we could have is to contemplate God, to glorify God, and even to worship God. But in order to do that, that actually requires making ourselves small <laughs> mm. and and. and trying to resist that temptation to domesticate God, let alone manipulate God, and rather approach him uh, on his own terms as someone who's altogether different from us, a trinity that's not made in our own image. Uh, In in scripture, actually, that's called idolatry. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, so in terms of fellowship, in terms of communion, how would you answer, can we have fellowship and communion with each member, each person of the trinity? You know, I love this question because it gets at the very heart of the Christian faith. That's um, right. my, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and, and bring <laughs> in a, a friend, uh, the Puritan John Owen. He actually, believe it or not, he actually wrote a whole book called Communion with the Trinity. And mm-hmm. he makes this beautiful argument. It's a very scriptural argument, actually. And what he says, on the one hand, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are one in essence, with one another. So when that means that whenever you have communion or fellowship with one person in the Trinity, you you get to enjoy, you have the privilege of enjoying communion and fellowship with the whole Trinity. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we see this in the way that uh, this triune God acts in salvation history. Um, why is it that Father, Son, and Spirit work and, and act as one in creation or providence or, or salvation, it's because Father, Son, Spirit are one. And yet at the same time, at the same time, we can also say that, well, 
Uh, notice how Father, Son, Spirit uh, appropriate uh, certain works of redemption. Uh, for example, a minute ago, we alluded to the fact that, hey, the, the Son is the one who's sent uh, to, be, to be incarnate and, and then to die on the cross and rise from the grave. Uh, and likewise, we point into the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. Uh, well, naturally, then, uh, if this is the case, then then that means that we can have fellowship or communion with each of the persons in a way that that fittingly corresponds, uh, right? So, so think for example of the way uh, we have this type of fellowship. We have fellowship the Father by his love for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we can only have that fellowship because, well, this is the Father uh, who loves his Son, and so we have fellowship with the Son uh, according to grace, uh, according to the grace that, that he has given to us. And what about the Holy Spirit? Well, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit according to the comfort and the consolation that the Spirit gives us. And that affects everything from prayer to worship so that when yeah. we pray, we are led by the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes, uh, comforts us, gives us assurance that that we belong and are, have been united to Jesus Christ. And Christ, because of the grace he's accomplished for us, can lead us to the presence of the Father uh, where we receive everlasting love and eternal mm. life. Oh, that's great. Uh, so many more questions, but we got like two minutes left. In your opinion, uh, kind of looking forward, what will the future look like if we as evangelicals uh, kind of stay on our present trajectory as it relates to the Trinity? If it continues kind of in the trajectory, if we, if we don't get this right, what, what's the result going to be? Well, uh, I think that the result will be more of the same at very best. And at worst case scenario, it, things could get could get worse. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, in my book, I I'm a big advocate for saying let's go back in time. Uh, let's mm. let's not just rely on the newest, greatest uh, you know thing out there, but l- let's actually go back in time and listen uh, to the to the best Bible interpreters of our past. Let's stand on their shoulders because if we do so, they will introduce us to the, the Trinity of the Bible in a way that safeguards us from any number of Trinitarian heresies. Mm-hmm. And I think that people will find that when you do that, when you take that that type of, you know, historical humility, whether it's, you know, reading uh, the Nicene Creed, for example, or reading, you know, one of the greats like Athanasius and, and his book on the Incarnation, I think you will find that it actually will prepare you well so that when you come into contact for, you know, more recent uh, views that kind of go off the rails, you'll notice it. It, it won't sit well with you and right. you'll start you'll start to recognize ways in which it, it actually diverts from a biblical and orthodox view of the Trinity. That's also good. Matthew Barrett is the Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast. And we've been talking about his new book called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Matthew, this has been great. Before we let you go, where can people find you? Social media, websites, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Matt M. Barrett. You can also find me at uh, cradomag.com where I, I host a podcast and, and a magazine. 
And of course, uh, pick up my book, Simply Trinity, you can find on Amazon or Baker Books mm-hmm. Publishing. Looking forward to reading it, man. This was really helpful. Matthew Barrett, thanks for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Somebody that we've talked to many times on our show and also read a lot is Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer, one of the busiest men in all of evangelicalism. He's over at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Uh, he also helps, uh, you know, he, he will teach at many churches. He's teaching pastor. He writes pr- uh, prolifically, all sorts of places. And so Ed, edstetzer.com at the Mission Group blog. Uh, he had a one-on-one with somebody who is fascinating. He had a one-on-one with Tim Keller, specifically about reaching skeptics with the gospel. It's Easter week, and it's a time when people are going to be, even skeptics are going to be uh, at least aware of what it is that is being celebrated, that it is Easter, that it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And with that, it might be a time that you can engage your skeptical family member or your neighbor. Uh, but Tim Keller has written extensively. He wrote Reason for God about reaching skeptics. This was a lot of what he did in New York City when he was a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, and Tim Keller, he's somebody we quote on this show often. Uh, both his Twitter account, his I've jokingly said he's written more books than I've read. Uh, or his sermons from back in the day. Uh, Tim Keller is a great follow all across the board. So uh, Ed Stetzer did a one-on-one interview with him called Reaching Skeptics with the Gospel. And I just found this to be really important because a lot of you, I know you out there, you want to be able to talk about Jesus. You want to be sent into your world. You want to see your family and friends come to know Jesus. But you're like, I don't know how to do it. So Stetzer starts this way. If you can answer people's questions and also learn how to question people's answers, that's how you can approach having these conversations. That's a quote from Tim Keller. If you can answer people's questions and also learn how to question people's answers, that's how you can approach. So Tim Keller has been a key voice in the evangelical world. And Ed Stetzer asked him this. So just a short story to start us off. I was on a plane once talking to a woman who lives near Moody Church. She'd had a bad experience with Christianity. So I said, if I got you these two books, would you meet me at church and give them a read? She said, yes. Uh, Later, met me at church and I gave her the books. One of them was Keller's book, Reason for God. And the other was a book uh, Keller wrote entitled Making Sense of God. So I'm a fan. But for the rest of the world, could you tell us a little bit more about these books? And Keller says, Reason for God is for people with a fairly high religious consciousness. That means they already pretty much believe in a personal God. They have some idea, but they they have questions. They have questions. Uh, making sense of God is for people who actually think the whole thing is absolutely stupid. It starts back further, and I think it's working with a much harder crowd, you might say. So if you believe that the universe just happened and there's no God, but that somehow human rights still exist, you can't prove that. In fact, it takes a little bit of faith to imagine humanistic values can arise from an impersonal uh, universe. So Reason for God is a phenomenal book. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'd encourage you to go get it. So Stetzer then asked Keller, let's talk a little bit about that to start. How do you start talking to a skeptic or an atheist who's already a skeptic? What's the starting point to that conversation? Keller says, well, it really depends if the person actually comes to you. Uh, I guess I would divide those conversations into two kinds. I would talk about answering questions uh, and questioning people's answers. 
The gentler approach is to question people's answers. That is, everybody has an operating answer to big questions like, what's my meaning in life or how do I handle suffering? Everybody has working answers. They just, uh, they're just not actually religious answers, but they are actually religious answers. They just don't see that they are. So what happens is that when you're talking to people and not about religion, you get to know them, you become friends. Then when you start talking about personal struggles, like when there are breakdowns, when a person gets disappointed or when there's a love relationship that falls apart and their working answers to those big questions aren't cutting it, there arises an opportunity to talk much more about Christianity. Uh, so he says, you need to work with other Christians, your pastor or whoever, to develop working answers that you feel good about. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to hide from uh who you are from other people because you're afraid of those. That's a really good. So what do you do? You, you prepare yourself for the questions in advance. Well, how would you answer? How would you answer if someone came to you and said, I, I have a problem that a good God allows suffering. I have a problem that a good God allows a pandemic, 500,000 plus people dying in the States. I have a problem that a kid could get cancer, whatever else it might be. Or I don't believe in, a resurrection or creation? How would you answer those questions? So Stetzer goes on to say, well, you've obviously been involved in more targeted approaches. Talk a little bit about the gospel in our city's initiative. He says, everybody talks about how Western culture is getting more and more secular and increasingly post-Christian. It's true that not all parts of the world and not all parts of North America are post-Christian, but cities, especially in the middle, biggest cities are. So he says, reaching the cities is more expensive, more complicated, more secular, but despite these complications, if we're watching more and more people move to cities, which we are, he says, I don't know if that's true after the pandemic, but he says the church has to go where the people are. That's what the Great Commission is about. We are called to go into the world. Uh, and so he goes on to talk about the need to go into the city. So I wanted to bring this up for a couple different reasons. We're in Easter week. People are asking questions, but also we're in the midst of a pandemic when people are asking hard questions. Where's God in this? They might be in your church and they're asking, where's God in this? They might be uh, your neighbors asking, God can't exist if this is going on. Or more on, a, more on a personal level, right? Like I said earlier, when cancer diagnosis comes or when the job is lost or a relationship breaks down, where are people going to turn? And Keller makes a wonderful point. Be prepared to answer that question. How would you answer the question, what do you do when the cancer diagnosis comes or a relationship breaks down? Or how do you explain a pandemic? Where's your hope in the midst of that? See, as Christ followers, we fully believe our hope is in the empty tomb that we're going to celebrate this week. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in him that abundant life is found. So I'd start by, A, asking you, do you believe that? Two, can you explain that? And then three, be in relationship with skeptics, with people who don't believe this. Put yourself in those opportunities. And then when, when people are hurting, be there for them. Just be a friend. And as you are a friend, you can offer kind of your hope, the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Like uh, that's what we are called to do. We are called to be sent ones. John chapter 17 that we are called to go and make disciples. And what do we go with? We are the ambassadors of Christ. We go with Christ's message. And that's what we do. Well, hopefully that's helpful for you. I know that was challenging to me when I read, just be ready to go. Be ready to go. 
We got one more hour left today. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk about this Gallup study that says fewer than half of Americans belong to a church or other house of worship. Going to talk about that survey next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to be joined by the senior editor at Relevant Magazine, Tyler Huckabee. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really glad to have you with us today. I want to talk about a Gallup poll that I was reading about. This was at Religion News. It says, Gallup poll says this, fewer than half of Americans belong to a church or other house of worship. While Americans still believe in God, a number, growing number have dropped out of organized religion. So this is Bob Smetana. He writes, ask Americans if they believe in God, and most will say yes but a growing number have lost faith in organized religion. For the first time since the late 1930s, fewer than half of Americans say they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. 47% of Americans say they belong to a house of worship, down from 70% in the mid-90s and 50 in 2019. The decline is part of a continued drop in membership over the last 20 years. The polling giant has been measuring church membership since 19. 19- 37, when nearly three quarters of the population reported membership in a house of worship. For much of that time, membership remained above 70%, but began to decline after 1999. By the late 2000s, membership had dropped about to about 62% and has continued to fall. Pollsters at Gallup looked at the survey data of 6,000 Americans and compared the data from 2018 to 2020. The decline in membership coincides with the rise of the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who claim no religious affiliation. Gallup reports that one in five Americans is a nun, making them as large a group as evangelicals or Catholics. Other polls have that number as high as 30 percent. Few nuns belong to a house of worship, Gallup found. As you would expect, Americans without a religious preference are highly unlikely to belong to a church, a synagogue or a mosque. Uh, Although a small proportion, 4 percent, say that they do. Uh, Gallup also found a decline in membership at churches, synagogues, and mosques among religious Americans. This is where this gets fascinating. That amongst religious people, people who say, I believe, I am religious, who make up 76% of the population, in that time frame, about three quarters of religious Americans were members of a house of worship from 1998 to 2000. That number has fallen to 60%. Younger Americans are increasingly disconnected from organized religions. It's going to go down and break this up, but we're going to let me jump down here. It says churches are only as strong as their membership and are dependent on their members for financial support and service to keep organizing, said the report, because it's unlikely that people who do not have a religious preference will become church members. The challenge for church leaders is to encourage those who do affiliate with a specific faith to become formal and active church members. And so it's going to go on to a couple different things. I Those numbers are stark. Like that's not like a percentage point. We're, we went from in the 70s, in the mid 90s, in the mid 1990s, in the 70 percentiles of people who are like, yeah, I'm part of a church, a synagogue, a mosque to now being below 50%. Like that's the span of 25 years is stark. And, and it got me thinking, why is that? I think there's a couple different reasons. I think um, I remember even in the 90s, there was a sacredness to Sunday. Even for non-Christians, there was a sacredness to Sunday. Do you know what happens on Sunday now in my house included? Uh, sports, uh, activities, uh, other craziness. 
it, Sundays are no longer culturally set apart. And I don't know how you fight that, right? Like my wife and I have wrestled with that with our kids' sports because if you want them to play on some of these better teams and be with their friends and this and that, you it's not so easy just to say, can't do Sunday ever. But you kind of have to like play the game of like how much Sunday, like what can I do? And it becomes uh, really difficult. And I also think that there has been a lack of trust within the institutional church for a couple different reasons. There were scandals over the years. Uh, there was, but I think it's uh, this also has a lot to do with how people view the church being tied politically to specific parties and politicians. So they say, I don't like that politician. Why would I go to the church? The, the church is that I see as tied to that politician, right? We've talked often on this show how people uh, people take evangelicalism and equate it to republicanism and even lately to Trumpism. And so if you're someone who goes, you know, no way, I'm much more progressive in my leaning. You're going to go, I'm not going to be a part of a church or at least that kind of church. And that becomes uh, really difficult. So I wanted to bring that up because I think it's really important. It's not just important for pastors, but it's important for all of us. I would say this, if you're one of those people who calls yourself religious, but not a churchgoer, go to church. There, Why, you might be asking. Well, A, I believe that in the scriptures, we are called to be part of a community of faith. It was never meant to be something we do on an island. You need to be people pushing you ahead, spurring you on, and and there's and you need to be served, but also serving other people. I do believe we are meant to be part of churches, but I think for all those of us in church leadership, we have to ask the hard question, why are these things true? Why are these things true? So we'll put that up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page. I also wanted to talk real fast. Brett McCracken, who's been on the show before at the Gospel Coalition, he reviewed a book called Uprooted, and it's entitled this, Log Off Instagram, Embrace your pr- your place. He says, it's been 15 years since I moved to the land of citrus, sun, and surf, and I've put new roots here. I love this place, but the longer I'm in California, the more I appreciate the Midwestern places that shape me, the more my soul longs uh, for sort of away for Oklahoma and Kansas soil that first nourished me. He said, these feelings bubbled up with force as I read this new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Uh, And he's going to go on and I I wanted to combine these because it's kind of in a weird way what we talked about. We need to be rooted in churches, I believe, over time, not just jumping from one to the other. But I believe I think there's implications to us being rooted. I know I grew up in New Jersey and I I desperately at times miss where I grew up, even though I love being out here. And he goes on to say, why are we rootless? Why are we rootless? Uh, And and he's going to say. Uh, throughout the book, uh, they, he says, sticking is increasingly countercultural. The author notes the foreboding generational attrition happening to America's farms. Fewer and fewer farm-raised young people want to continue their parents' work. Everyone tend towards rootlessness and restlessness today. We're all lured by grasses, greener prospects of life somewhere other than where we are. One major undermining our one major factor undermining our rootedness in tangible community and place is digital technology. When we spend our lives increasingly on screens in the busyness of a million distant places and quote aware of the exciting lives of distant connections on Instagram, we can't help but become disenchanted with our proximate place and contented with our people. Man, this idea of rootedness uh, is so important. I want to read this book because this idea of rootedness, we are more like tumbleweeds, he says, rather than rooted plants. 
He says it's costly to be a sticker here, to, to stick where you are. But this is home. It's where our people are, our church, our mission, our membership, and it's worthwhile. I'd love for you to wrestle with both of those stories. I think they go hand in hand, this Gallup poll that people aren't a part of churches nearly as much anymore. And this idea of being rooted, getting off our phones, stop talking about the grass always being greener somewhere else, stop moving all the time. But what does it look like for us to be rooted, rooted in a church, rooted in a town, rooted in a family, rooted in in our discipleship, taking the long, obedient view, right? Eugene Peterson's long obedience in the same direction. You can find those articles up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. We're glad you're joining us today here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by Tyler Huckabee. Tyler is the senior editor at Relevant Magazine, also the co-host of the Cape Town podcast. Tyler, thanks for coming back on the show. How are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm doing really good. It's really good to be back. Uh, it's a it's a nice day here in Nashville. I was just telling you, I get we're I'm like I'm one I'm one vaccine dose in, so I feel extra strong today. I feel very <laughs> powerful. <laughs> there I, you I, go. Take on anything. There you go. Hey, for people who haven't heard you on the show before, on our show before, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? I'm Tyler Huckabee. I've been at Relevant Magazine now for about six years. Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> it's really, there's not a whole lot more to it than that. I'm both uh, the editor there, which means uh, not only do I write a lot of the content, but I'm also on the Relevant podcast a lot. And like you said, I also am on the uh, I, I'm the host of the Cape Town podcast. That's my night job. And that's where we get to talk about comic books, which I, I find myself much more capable of doing than usually most of the stuff that comes out of Relevant Magazine. But there's also not a whole lot of money in comic book podcasts, believe it or not. So that stays, <laughs> that, that's an after-hour situation. You need a day job in order to yeah, keep I the, uh, the yeah, passion for going. For now, hey, until the culture catches up with me. Yeah, as I was saying, you and I were joking off, off air that you had a couple um, – articles dropped this week. I was like, man, how much are you writing? But before we jump into that, uh, we've got somebody on the phone here from Nashville. What's the flooding been like? We're all up here in Chicago reading about the craziness down there. Uh, Give us a little firsthand account of what it's like down there. You know what? So we're, we were fortunate here in East Nashville. We got a lot of storms and like trees went down and a tree right across from us went down. Um, but it missed our house, which is the way we like it. Obviously (laughs) we did not, we did not, we were not out on the road. So it was bad over here. And we had hail that I thought for sure, like, Oh, that's it. This is how we're going for sure. Like just the sound of the hail was loud enough that I was like, it's coming through the roof. This is going to be like that day after tomorrow movie. And we're just going to get swept away. Like we're going to, we're going to suffocate under a bunch of hail. Didn't happen. Um, but then in some of the lower counties, which are, which are around, not in our part of town, but around us, obviously things got really bad. Yeah. And, uh, they had to rescue a lot of people. And unfortunately, some people uh, died as well. So it was, it was, I was telling you, we, Nashville has just taken a beating the past That's year. Right. It seems like since those, uh, about, it was about a year ago that we had those tornadoes come through. That was obviously very devastating. We still haven't picked up everything from those. You can still drive around and see a lot of tornado damage. That they wow. haven't been able to get to because right after that came the pandemic. Obviously, uh, there was the bombing that took place downtown with the van that went up. Uh, fortunately, no lives lost there. But it's been an interesting. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of kind of low level. 
trauma going on in Nashville with the just the sheer amount of kind of like acts of God type events that keep That's coming right. up. It's weird. It's hard. It has been a difficult past. It's been difficult for everybody, obviously, with the pandemic. But there's been some extra just kind of uh, traumatic icing on top that has made living here its own very strange adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys have been going through a lot down there. It does feel like it. Um, hey, before we jump into these articles, I uh, also have a question for you. Again, you write about such a, a cross section of things, and we're going to touch on some of them. How do you uh, <laughs> kind of how the sausage is made? How do you even decide what to write on? How do you write across this kind of large scope that you do? It sounds like a compliment. I hope it is. I have a few rules on that. For one thing, for when we write for relevant, mm-hmm. uh, I want to make sure that everything we do is something that only we can do. That uh, that has a very nobody else could could write this take because we're coming from a very unique uh, perspective. There's not a whole lot of places out there that are trying to cater to a younger a millennial slash increasingly Gen Z audience That's right. with a Christian take that is still that, that doesn't want to be part of a culture war that, that wants to be that wants to be more inclusive that wants to find solutions that transcend the artificial faith lines that we've drawn up in this country. So that actually narrows down the number of things you can write about quite a bit because right. <laughs> not a lot of things fall. You know, everything can have a a faith angle to it as we call it in the biz. Uh, a faith angle. And, and for a while there in the 90s, you remember it got a little bit ridiculous when people were like, finding God in the Transformers movies. And like, well, right. I don't know that everything has a faith angle to it, but, but you got to feed that content beast somehow. But if you're if you're being honest about it and authentic about it, then it, that does um, filter out a lot of the big news stories that I just don't really have to pay attention to because it doesn't fall into something that we can uniquely speak into from the unique relevant perspective. That's great. Yeah, it is interesting because you guys write about so many different kinds of things. So one of the articles that came down on uh, March 29th from you is how the church should shape America's gun conversation. Obviously, uh, gun control, gun laws is such a hugely uh, controversial topic in the church, outside the church. Why don't you give us a little bit of, of kind of the point of the article about how the church should shape America's gun conversation? That was a conversation that I had with a woman named Taylor Schumann, and mm-hmm. she has a book coming out this summer. Uh, the name of the book is When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. She's really spectacular. I'd highly recommend giving her a follow on Twitter, on social media. She is herself a shooting survivor. She was working at a college when a student came in and uh, fired. She fortunately survived that shot and then became, she was raised, uh, as you, if you read the conversation, which I would encourage you to, still talks about how she was raised in an extremely pro gun family, one of those big gun, you know, hoorah, rah, yeah. Second Amendment type families. And getting shot was the beginning of her processing, why do I do this? And is there a more nuanced version of this conversation that, that I've been blind to? Hearing somebody talk about changing their mind on the gun conversation, that's like a unicorn, man. You know, that, that's, you, <laughs> yes. you don't hear that. You don't talk to people who are like, something happened to me and it changed my mind. Yeah. And, uh, and if anything's going to do it, I would imagine getting shot is one of those things. And she has since then become a very forceful, very powerful voice among sort of conservative Christianity in the digital space for more gun control, for comprehensive gun, gun reform which is going to become more and more of a conversation topic as we start coming out of quarantine. And I think this conversation is really going to probably pick up right where it left off, you know, yeah. the last couple of weeks are any indication. 
uh, gun violence has not really gone anywhere just That's because right. we had a pandemic. Yeah. And so two part question, and this is a tough question. I get it. Uh, why do you think it's such a polarizing topic within the church? It's not just culturally, but within the church. Uh, and how do you think the church should approach uh, the topic of gun control and just gun policy? I think that the church in this country has been so um, uh, it's been, I'll use the word hijacked by the, by political parties. So I don't think this is inherently a divisive conversation within the church for any religious reasons. I do think that politically it's a very polarizing question. And because the church has become so subsumed by the Republican party, that makes it sort of, it, it, it then just brings along that polarize that polarization into the church, even though it's not really an inherently faith conversation, right? It, it, this is about the Second Amendment and the Constitution mm-hmm. and, and very complicated stuff, which I believe obviously the Bible can speak into and does speak into. But I don't think that there is a, a inherently Christian factor to the Second Amendment. Um, in terms of how we shape it, I, I think what we have to do is learn how to see above these political dividing lines. We we have to stop. We have it's imperative that we stop, not just for the gun control debate, but for for so many other things as well. Stop getting dragged around by the political conversations. Uh, I just feel like we are so reactive, getting blown and tossed by any political conversation, uh, and, and we don't really see where the politics of the end and our own religious views begin. And we need to find a way to divorce those two things. And it's going to be a very messy, yeah. uh, you know, it's going to take a long time because it has gotten very, very intertwined like a surgery. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we can figure out how to divide our politics from our faith and see beyond that, then I think that that's going to provide us with the moral clarity we need to hopefully take a, a more divisive lead in this conversation instead of just getting dragged along behind. Yeah, that's really well put. That's Tyler Huckabee. He is senior editor at Relevant Magazine. You wrote a fascinating article uh, about uh, Dan Price, I believe his name. It's The title is The $70,000 Minimum Wage CEO's Vision of a Better America. Can you remind us just everybody the background story of this CEO? So Dan Price is the CEO of this credit card company that's out in Seattle, built a very, very successful company at a very young age. He's, he's my age and, and he was a millionaire. He was quite wealthy. He was being quite, quite successful. And then he found out, and he, it's, a, it's a longer story than this, but essentially found out that his financial success was not translating to his employees who were still struggling to make ends meet. So he read a study where he learned that the opt in this country, the optimal salary for somebody to be happy is $75,000 a year. So mm-hmm. he cut a bunch of corners and he sold his houses and he mortgaged everything, took an enormous pay cut and was able to make $70,000 the starting, the minimum wage at his company. So if you get a job there, you, you're making 70 grand off the bat. And uh, he told me about how that, that was a few years ago. And he just, we, we talked about how that's gone for him. Yeah. And what's the pushback he gets? Because it seems like everybody would cheer for this. Like, this is the greatest thing. But I've read enough articles that not everybody's happy with them. What's the pushback he gets? And how does he answer that pushback? I think initially there was a lot of different pushback. Uh, you you get this sort of immediate cry of socialism because that mm-hmm. word just doesn't have a whole lot of meaning in this country anymore, right? You just get anything that sounds 
kind of vaguely financially scary. You get to branded socialism. And I think a lot of it too had to do with this idea of like millennial entitlement. Um, if we just give these people $70,000 off the bat, then are, why are they going to uh, work hard? Because they've already, they don't need to climb the corporate ladder anymore because they've got everything they need uh, right off the bat. I think those were the two major points that he, at least he brought up with me of contention. He had uh, one of, somebody on his board resigned in protest of this move wow. when he announced it. It was very, very decisive. But as he told me, it's been very good for him and they, they've experienced a lot of success in the last couple of years since they do. They're a bigger company company now than they were beforehand. They've generated more revenue. And, and this sounded very important to him, his employees are just happier. They're just yeah. better. They're starting families. They're buying houses. You know, they're able to do... And they want to stick around too because they're, they know they're being treated well and their actual uh, quality of life is positively impacted by their job. That's not something everybody can say in this country. That's right. I would encourage people to go read that at our Facebook page, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk, because it's a fascinating article. I remember hearing his story, uh, but to read it more in depth really is uh, pretty fascinating. All right. The third article you wrote this week, uh, the real religious scandal of Lil Nas X's Montero isn't the video itself. Here's where I feel old. I read the headline. I go, I have no idea what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot of weird words in one headline. <laughs> and so I'm just showing my age. I'm sure my 17-year-old daughter, my 13-year-old son, they would know what this is about. But uh, for people my age, what's the scandal here? What's the controversy? Lil Nas X, you probably remember from a few years ago, he, he wrote Old Town Road. Uh-huh. And uh, and that became the most successful single that has ever been released in this country. It, it broke right? all kinds of records, and it was a very fun, you know, jam. And now he's back with a new single, song, and music video, and this is called Montero. And it's way less. I think people were shocked because it's a little less. It's kind of seemingly innocent than Old Town Road was, although that song wasn't quite as uh, kid friendly as a lot of people made it out to be either. But this That's one, right. the music video is uh, it, it plays with a lot of like very. Uh, kind of like the popular image of Satan and its imagery. Lil Nas X descends into hell where he like, he like has a, I will say some, some one-on-one time with Satan and uh, before killing Satan and becoming the new like king of hell. So that's, and it's, oh. and it's all done as very like tacky, campy. Um, this isn't Dante's Inferno, right? This yeah, is just, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, these are a bunch of Halloween costumes. So that became a huge scandal. It was obviously designed to shock people and it very much did. What are your thoughts about, so I'm a parent, I've got teenagers. Uh, what are your thoughts? Cause you know, parents can go a couple different ways on this. It's like, make sure my kid never sees this or it's, Hey, let's talk about this. Cause this is kind of out there in culture. How do you kind of process those things? And what would you suggest to parents out there? I don't want to speak too much into, you know, every, every household is going to have different rules about this. And I think there's a lot of different, I think people of good conscience can disagree over content like this and how they help their kids consume it. And, and I would, it's, it's not, and Lil Nas X has even said this online. This is not a video for kids. He's, mm. he, he didn't, he designed this not thinking that this was going to be the next big like elementary school hit or anything. Um, so I, I would I would encourage people to be very cautious with it, but I would also, and this is what the article got into, very much encourage people to resist the easy outrage here because it, it feels very much designed as sort of a a an outrage talking point, and a lot of mm-hmm. Christians really fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, tumbled right into it, and gave this a lot of oxygen. 
And I think, and this is not an original point to me, a few other people described this very well, talked about the the real outrage here, the real scandal, is that this is a, this guy, Lil Nas, who, whose name is Montero, his real name is Montero, grew up in the church, dad was a gospel singer, and something about his church experience said, we don't want you here, you're, you're not allowed here. And uh, he, the church really failed him spectacularly enough that this is the message that he took away from all of it is that, well, I guess I'd rather be in hell then, you know, yeah. and that's on, that's on the church. That's mm. on us. That's not his fault. Um, there was a great quote from a pastor named Dr. Jackie Lewis, who said the true religious scandal isn't how Lil Nas X made that video. It's that preaching ever made him feel less than beautiful, sacred and beloved. And I thought that was a great message. Yeah. That's really good. All right. One more of your articles. It's fun to just kind of pull your articles and, and have the author on here. Back on March 10th, you, you wrote about Beth Moore, and we've talked a lot about Beth Moore on this show. And uh, she is both a lightning rod, but also highly respected by other people. She, she And she's just a strong presence. You wrote an article called How Beth Moore is Showing a New Way Forward. I guess I don't know how better to ask it than how is she showing a new way forward and what is that new way? <laughs> Well, I I'm, I got to show my bias here because I'm a big fan of Beth. Me Moore. too. Beth, Me Beth too. is Beth is great, and I'm not going to pretend to be super objective on this point <laughs> because I, I do like her, and I've, and I've liked her my whole life. And I think what the way that she is showing a new way forward is, I think so many Christians um, my age, younger, and and some older folks as well have been so disillusioned, and Beth would maybe say that she has been as well in some ways so disillusioned by the direction that the church, and in her case specifically, the Southern Baptist Convention has gone over the last few years, getting caught up in these very damaging controversies around race, uh, getting caught up in very damaging conversations around gender, about women in leadership roles, and and then obviously uh, stuff politically, which whatever side you fall on politics, uh, it's hard to ignore the fact that it seems like the SBC has become basically a political machine with some religious language thrown in. And uh, nobody's, I, I think this has hurt a lot of people. It certainly hurt me. It feels like mm-hmm. a wound on an emotional level. And mm-hmm. the fact that somebody a lot of us grew up with, uh, Beth Moore, who I remember, you know, my mom reading Beth Moore books right. when I was a little kid, the fact that she has maintained not only a clear eyed sense of what the faith could be, but has also expressed the same sort of outrage and shock and uh, hurt at all of this that we feel and is given language to it, obviously much better language than I can. She's very eloquent, uh, feels has helped us feel like we're not crazy. Uh, Mm -hmm. You were, you you are right. There was something here that you thought was good and you, you're not wrong to feel like it's been changed or exposed or become something that was not what you were promised. And it's okay to, uh, to distance yourself from that sort of religion and, uh, and seek out something better and truer, which she has obviously done. She, she made a lot of news for That's saying right. she was no longer a Southern Baptist just a couple of weeks that- ago. Uh, and I think that affirmed a lot of people's, uh, it, it was a fir- it was very sad to see. And, I'm, and I know she was brokenhearted about it, but it also affirmed, I think for a lot of people that, yeah, it, it felt like you saw somebody, you felt like you knew which way was up again by seeing somebody else do that. You know, it provided leadership because, uh, you didn't feel like totally like you, you didn't feel like you're being gaslit anymore. I'll say that. that yeah. way. Somebody else feels the same way you do. 
That's well put. Tyler Huckabee is the senior editor at Relevant Magazine, also the co-host of the Cape Town podcast. I'd encourage you to go to relevantmagazine.com and there you're going to find Tyler writes a lot. And as do they have other great authors there as well who are writing other great writers. You could also follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Huckabee. That's at Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, we always appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks for doing it. Always happy to be here. Thanks a lot, guys. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Sometimes we try to end our show with some inspiration. Today, I just wanted to end a little bit inspirational, but also I found something. Next time I have a co-host and I'm going to go over this with them, but I found something that just made me laugh. Here was an article I found at Relevant. We just had Tyler on, but this was at Relevant. It's entitled this, Nine Songs Every 90s Youth Group Kid Still Has Memorized. And I was a 90s youth group kid, let me tell you. So it says, if you own this, this, or one of these, then you're a church kid. One of those select few whose parents shuttled you off to your local house of worship whenever the doors, this is my life. This is it. Uh, so it says, these are the songs. I gotta be honest. I'm going to read the nine songs that every nineties, uh, youth group kid, it says should know. I knew about four or five of these. So I want to know how many, you know, so here we go. Number one, obviously I knew this one. Number one. Uh, oh, let's start with number nine. Let's go nine to one. So number nine jars of clay flood. Of course, of course I could still sing that whole song. If it came on right now, number two, switch foot, dare to move. Of course, I knew that one. Uh, it says, uh, yeah, if you know Dare to Move, then you uh, had a happy childhood. That's funny. Uh, number seven, Audio Adrenaline, Big House. Always found this to be such a strange song. But yes, it was the church camp song. So knew that one. Uh, number six, Kirk Franklin, Revolution. Did not know that one. Okay. Okay. That's my first one. Uh, number five, another really strange song. But the Newsboys, Breakfast. I could sing this if it came on tomorrow, but it was so weird, this song. Number four, Reliant K, Sadie Hawkins Dance. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, number three, Five Iron Frenzy. I think we've had them on here. Five Iron Frenzy, One Girl Army. Okay. Number two, Stacey Arico, Don't Look at Me. I didn't know this song. I did not know this song. But number one, DC Talk. Free at last. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> uh, every DC talk song is great. With that in mind, too, at Christianity Today, uh, an article about a movie review called Netflix's Christian Camp Musical Nails Its 90s CCM Soundtrack. A Week Away captures the look and sounds of summer camp, but misses the beliefs benign the catchy song. I don't want to spend much time on this, but there is now a movie on Netflix called Christian Camp Musical. It's called A Week Away that is filled with things uh, like uh, the songs like The Great Adventure by Stephen Curtis Chapman and others. So anyway, I saw these. I will be watching that Netflix show. I can guarantee you that. Uh, and including the Audio Adrenaline song. There we go. Okay, here's our inspiration to end us out on. At the Washington Post, we read this. You're just going to get it from the headline. A Baltimore restaurant owner drove six hours to cook a favorite meal for a terminally ill customer. The request came in late on a Thursday afternoon to the restaurant owner, Steve Chu. One of his customers had terminal cancer and her son-in-law wondered if it would be possible to get the recipe of her favorite broccoli temp tempura entree so he can make it for her at her home in Vermont. 
Chu, age 30, specializes in Asian fusion cuisine and is the co-owner of two Ekaben locations in Baltimore. He read the email on March 11 and instantly knew that he could do better. He said he quickly replied with the alternative suggestion. Thanks for reaching out, he wrote. We'd like to meet you in Vermont and make it for you. Brandon Jones, age 37, was stunned. I emailed back saying, you do know that this is Vermont we're talking about. It's a six-hour drive. Steve responded, no problem. You tell us the date, time, and location, and we'll be there. Jones and his wife, Rena Jones, were preparing to leave for their home in the Canton neighborhood for Vermont that weekend to visit Rena's mom, who was in the final stages of lung cancer and had stopped treatment. For the past five or six years, every time his mother-in-law visited Baltimore, the first place she wanted to go was Ekeben, and she would order the tempura broccoli topped with fresh herbs, diced onion, and uh, fermented cucumber vinegar. She loves that, Jones said. Uh, about his mother-in-law, who asked that her name not be published in a, in a request for privacy at the end of her life. She had always told us, when I'm on my deathbed, I want to have that broccoli. <laughs> That's amazing. In fact, when I was packing on Friday to drive up to v Vermont, I called my mom to see if she wanted us to bring anything special. And she jokingly said, tempura broccoli. When Chu said he'd be happy to make the dish, uh, the dish from scratch on Saturday afternoon, Rena Jones said she was elated. It's just so above and beyond. It's an incredible act of kindness. The next day, uh, Chu loaded his truck after work with a hot plate and a cooler filled with the ingredients, headed to Vermont with his business partner. The trio stayed overnight in an Airbnb rental, he said, then stopped for additional ingredients on their way to the condo where the mom lives. To me, it was a huge honor to help fulfill this family's wish. This is about her, not us. This was a lot of good, positive energy doing this. Uh, keeps going on uh, about what got him going. But it says the first time Rena Jones took her mother to Ekibin, she ordered the broccoli tempura and was immediately hooked. From then on, whenever she'd fly in, that's what she wanted. Uh, but when the coronavirus hit last spring, Ekibin switched temporarily to, uh, switched to takeout only. We've been doing all right, he says. Fulfilling the wish of a 72-year-old customer struggling with the late-stage cancer seemed like the right thing to do. As soon as he and his team pulled into the parking lot of the combo condo, they texted Arena Jones. They'd arrived and got to work. They pulled down the gate of the pickup, hooked the hot plate to the power port, and started deep frying. In addition to the broccoli tempura, they made a tofu dish with peanut sauce and fresh herbs and some steamed rice. Ooh, I'm hungry. Uh, they knocked on the customer's front door. Go ahead and answer, Arena said to her mom. As soon as she opened the door, she recognized the aroma immediately. It smelled amazing. She also recognized Chu and his coworkers. My mom kept saying, I don't understand. You drove all the way up here to cook for me. She was so happy and touched to have the broccoli. They came in for dinner uh, and had a nice time together. Mom cried and cried and cried. So I, I, why do we close with that story? Friends, I want to put a smile on your face. This pandemic's been hard for a lot of you. A lot of life is just hard right now for many of you. Uh, wanted to put a smile on your face, but also remind us as Christ followers, our call is to go above and beyond, to love people, to show the love of Christ. Uh, and this restaurant owner, you might be like, oh, he just cooked a meal. He drove six hours to fulfill the dying wish when he could have just said, yeah, here's the uh, here's the recipe. Good luck with that. Or I'm busy. Uh, he instead sent this entire thing and he went up there and then kind of blessed her at the end of her life. That's what we're to be about. Blessing others with the love of Christ, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to go above and beyond. Why? It's because of what we celebrate at Easter time. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That that is the good news of Easter and the good news of grace. And what do I see when I read this story of a guy driving all the way from Baltimore up to Vermont 
to fulfill this wish of this dying woman. I see the love of Christ. I see somebody going above and beyond to look at someone and say, you're special enough for me to have done that. May we act in this way to others, whether it be our next door neighbor, our family, or somebody we do not know. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday. We'll be back together tomorrow from four until six. Until then, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.